You're listening to WCOMLP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity in Christianity, you've come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world a better place in tangible ways. This is not a zone for spiritual escapism, Sunday school answers, or Christianese. We're here to call out religious BS and look for better ways forward. And if you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of... Sarcasm. And also a little bit of this... Then you've come to the right place. Welcome home. On today's show, I'm going to be sitting down with author Melissa Floor Bixler and her new book, How to Have an Enemy. Before we enter into the snark, just a reminder that this broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at www.snarkyfaith.com and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube. We're here, we're there, we're everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. And if you're looking to interact more with the show, you can find the Snarky Faith page on Facebook. You can drop me a line at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And there's even the snarky hotline if you want to leave a message. That number is 919-525-1570. That's 919-515-1570. Well, I hope everyone's week is going by swimmingly and you are doing well. I myself am finding my, uh, what are we, I'm halfway through the summer. It's not too bad where we're at. 90s aren't quite 130, like what happened in Death Valley or in the Pacific Northwest last week. Yeah, so I shouldn't be complaining. And plus, we got Ted Lasso coming out in a couple weeks. Week or two. Week or two. Week or two. If you don't know who Ted Lasso is, you should. You should. It's exactly what you need right now. Or six months ago is what you needed to, but you still need it now. Yeah. So kicking off the show, I wanted to talk about two different surveys that were out recently there was a this is a, a this was a pew poll um that was examining the 2020 electorate based on validated voters and and in in the category of did we not learn anything spoiler we did not and when i say we i do not mean me i speak of white evangelicals of which I was years ago. But but here 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 is what what some of the findings show us that Trump's strong support amongst white evangelical Protestants in 2016 77% voted for him. What about 2020? Did we learn anything? Did did we learn anything evangelicals? Well, we did learn that they wanted more. They saw what they had the first time, and then they're like, you know what? It was so terrible. I want a double dose of that because 84% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2020. 
while, which I love they throw in this here, while Biden got more support amongst atheists and agnostics than, than did Clinton in 2016. What do we hear about that? Aha, so hold these up, right? Hold these in your head. So this one survey, we see the upswing for white evangelicals, loving Trump. We also see Biden getting a lot of support from atheists and agnostics. Okay, so they're going to hop over to this. Now, this is the PP. No, it's not the PP. <laughs> it's the PRRI, uh, the Public Religion Institute. So they had also done a survey and looking at trends within religion in America. Who's been trending up? Who's trending down? What's happening? And I'm not going to say these two necessarily are, are, are connected in nature, but I, I do think, I do think they are. <laughs> I mean, you can't completely prove this, but I do think they are. Because the PRRI found this over at Roll to Disbelieve over on Patheos. And I'm going to go ahead and quote from the article to summarize what the PRRI, I won't make that mistake again, <laughs> what the PRRI had to say. There really isn't much good news in this survey for white evangelicals. Not only do their numbers continue to decline over the past decade, but now their hated, derived enemies... The white mainline Christians <gasps> outnumber them now. That's right. That's right. Because it seems like, it seems like to me on paper, the more they love Trump, <laughs> the less palatable they become to people. And people just leave church because they can't see Jesus anymore. That checks out. That checks out. So, like, does the greeting card industry have, like, a card for an occasion like this? Like, Sorry that your hatred has driven your flock away. Flip the page. Maybe it's because you hate people that are gay. I don't know. I, you know, spitballing here, spitballing here. So Hallmark, call me, because maybe we could make up something. It always warms the heart to see a hate group decline in numbers. I, I don't know about you, but it does mine. It warms my heart every time. And speaking about crazies, crazies of the faith, we also have here on the show, if you're new to the show today, listening, our weekly segment where we, we, we farm the best of the worst, the choicest cuts of Christian nuts, the worst parts of Christianity, and we mine all of their insanity. So, without further ado, let's hop in for the Christian crazy of the week. If loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. Well, you can't get crazy without Hank Kuhneman. He is... He is literally the king of Christian bullshit. I mean, if there was a prize, if there was a crown, a bullshit crown made of literal bullshit, it would be suiting because that, that is high praise for Hank Kuhneman and his ability to, to spin yarns, to prophesy, get it wrong, but blame everyone else. Oof. It's got to be fun being married to that guy. So here, and I remind you, Hank is, is preaching this in his church. Now, I know prophets get a certain amount of space to kind of 
I don't know, like, what are they, like, jazz? They can kind of go off the book and just kind of play it by feel. But, uh, you know, call me crazy. I don't see how this really, really fits into church service on a Sunday morning. But here we go. Psalm 72, verse 14 declares that God is the God that redeems us from oppression, fraud, and violence. This will begin to take place. Whoa, 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 whoa there, big guy. Let's just pump the brakes real quick. Let's actually do a little bit of, you know, biblical reading and not move just beyond that. One, Scripture doesn't exactly say that. It doesn't exactly capture what he's saying. He's quoting Psalm 72, 14, where it says, He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Now, what we should do is take a few steps back in what's happening in these verses here. Let's start in 12. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Now, what does this say? What does this say for, for, for people that are butthurt because they lost an election and still can't give it up? What is that? It doesn't say that at all. Oh, well, what about for people that are into uh, the, just lovers of Christian nationalism and everything belonging to the fat orange Messiah? No, that really doesn't apply to any of them at all either. It, it has to do with, with the weak and the marginalized and, and those that, that God tends to side himself with. So Hank is taking this completely out of context. Now, we're not here to try to parse out how Hank reads scripture, because we already know it's terrible. I just needed to get that part off my chest because it really made no sense what he was going after for scripture. But, 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 in these circles, scripture, schmicture, it doesn't matter. He just uses that as a hopping off point, right? So remember, remember this. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back just a bit so you can remember what he was trying to say and see where he goes with it. And you have to ask yourself, How's he going to make this about Trump? Because you know he's going to do it. You know he's going to do it. So here we go. Let me rewind it a bit and let you listen to it again. Psalm 72, verse 14 declares that God is the God that redeems us from oppression, fraud, and violence. This will begin to take place. The other thing that God has been specifically speaking, this is the 240 fifth year of America's reign. And I believe that it represents two more terms for 45. Or two terms for 45. Woo! 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 There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is how it's done. That is why he's the king. Did any of those two connect together whatsoever? No, not at all. To think that two and 45 and how old our country is, that means two for four. What? This is so stupid. It's so asinine, but guess what? Nobody does it better. Oof, no more singing for Stuart in the show. <coughs> yeah, yeah. So next up, next up, now, 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 I, I've shown you some of the best. And, and not everyone can be quite as good of the spiritual gift of BS, but Hank was blessed with it. He was touched with it. Or you can make it just say he's just touched. Well, next up, we have Dutch sheets. Dutch sheets. It's kind of like, hmm, is this Egyptian cotton? No, they're just Dutch sheets. Dutch sheets is going to talk about some miraculous things that have happened during COVID. 
But you also need to note here, he's going to tell some amazing tales of what's happened, but also tell you why exactly that we can't prove any of this or interview anybody about this or have any eyewitnesses about any of this just because, just because. So yeah, this is technique number two today. If you can't quite spin a yarn that well, just, just say, it's because I can't tell you. And it's God's timing, and he's now, he's now bringing this anointing, and signs and wonders are going to start following this quickly. I know of at least, I know of three situations personally of people that were raised from the dead by a doctor during COVID. One of those people raised, went into the room after the person died with COVID. One of those people, the death certificate had already been signed. And this person was raised from the dead. Now, they can't talk about this because they could get in trouble, believe it or not, for, for doing this and for, you know, talking about it. But I'm just saying this is beginning to happen and we're just getting started. Oh, you have no idea what's going to happen. There's going to be like signs and like wonders, like what kind of signs and wonders? Oh, they're going to be huge. They're going to be big. And it, we're just like getting started. And well, when are we going to get started? Oh, like it's, it's happening now. You can't see it, but it's going to be great. You're going to get everything you wanted to. This is going to be like Santa Claus, like 2.0. It's amazing. Hey, everyone look over there there's a bird that's some bread and butter charlatan work there for you that's it's it's pretty standard so kind of one-on-one charlatan work but it's pretty that's it's a good side it's a good solid move it's a good solid move there by dutch sheets not quite hank kuhneman level but if you can't if you can't get to the heights if you can't get to the heights of where hank is at what you can do you can do Something that is, it is, it is a, it, it's something that is, I would say it's kind of a Christian tradition. Some may say it is kind of a spiritual practice. Uh, but this is really the art of, of guilting people. Like if, if you can't, if you can't win them over, if you can't convince them, you might as well just make them feel like absolute trash. I mean, Christians have perfected this move. And it may not be as, as showy as a Hank Kuhneman, but Perry Stone can bring it. That's right. Crazy-ass Perry Stone can totally bring it like he's going to do here. Now, this is classic, classic, and it's beautiful. And by beautiful, I mean it's horrible. It's horrible and disgusting. If you were called to do something, maybe you were called to help a church or a ministry a fellowship, and that was the call where God placed you. But somehow out of offense or what you heard or what somebody said or someone's opinion, you just decided I'm out of here and you left. What if you were supposed to be the person to greet that young person or even pray for them in an altar and see them deliver from suicide and you're not there and that person commits suicide because you were assigned to be the person to reach them? This is a very, very serious thing. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit gave me a warning for Christians to please be at the position He's called you. Be the soldier He's called you. Be the, be the person at the intercession, in, in the trench lines of intercession that He's called you to be. Because otherwise, somebody else will take your crown and you will not have anything to lay before the feet of Jesus when we bow and take our crowns off. To worship him. See, this here is 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 really sick and twisted Christian kinky fuckery that's that's going on. It, it's 
the whole thing, and I've, I've heard this preached in different iterations over the years, the idea that the blood is on your hands. If you don't do this, and then this happens, the blood is on your hands. If you weren't there holding a door for someone to walk in, they could have accidentally stepped on a crack and broken their mother's back. It's awful. And then God's going to take your crown away because God in our situation here is very small and tiny. And yes, this is sick shit. This is not the heart of Jesus. It's antithetical to the gospel and it's pathetic. It's not pathetic that it works on people because people want to believe their pastors and faith leaders. But it is pathetic that faith leaders use this kind of argument or stream of logic to be able to control and manipulate people because that's what church is about, right? Come on, haven't we learned anything? Church is simply about controlling and manipulating people in order to either be able to get some sort of power or money or prestige. Wait, what? No, that's wrong. That's completely wrong. I mean, that's the inverse of how it's supposed to be. Oh, right, 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 right. Because that's why we're being snarky and sarcastic during the Christian crazy, because this is the example of what Christianity should not be. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that and advocacy when I sit down with our interview that's going to happen right now. So today we are talking with Melissa Floor Bixler. Melissa is the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church. She's a graduate of Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She spent time studying in Israel, Palestine, Kenya, and England, and much of her formation took place in the La Arche community in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of the new book, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace, that is out in on July 20th um, this month. So, Melissa, welcome. Welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be here with you, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. So, first of all, I, I do, for starters, I do have to disclose that I really enjoyed the book. And what I will say is it's, it's challenging in a way that doesn't let you back down. You give personal historical stories of the oppressed and oppressors with, like, theological backing for this call to action. And I feel like it's fire, it's necessary, and I loved it. So, first of all, I love the book. Oh, yeah, so before we hop into the book, I want to talk a little bit about the person behind the book. Because uh, you touch on this in the book a little bit, saying that you started out life as a kid in the conservative Episcopalian church. So how did you go from there to where you are now? Uh, in the Mennonite church, you're an advocate and a voice for change. So give us like a little, yeah, what's a snapshot of Melissa? Um, yeah, I grew up in the conservative ends of the Episcopal Church. Um, you may know it as the Anglican Church in North America, Akina. Um, that didn't exist when I was a kid, but um, emerged sort of after um, I had grown up a little bit. And yeah, and so I, you know, I I started off in the suburbs of Washington D.C. in a um, deeply militarized town. Um, uh, Lockheed Martin is one of the, the the major employers in Manassas, Virginia. Um, you know, so so very much this sort of, like a very strong sense of national identity of of national identity linked to to imperial identity and um, and, and churches in that area, at least the churches that I attended. Um, uh, deeply interwo interwoven between Christianity and that sort of nationalist imperialist identity. Um, and so, 
I, that was just, you know, that's what you knew, right? When you're a kid, you grow up and that's, that's the church you have. And that's the church, you know, and, and, um, you know, we are marking the, uh, the death of, uh, Donald Rumsfeld this week, um, which is, so it's interesting to be having this conversation with you because it was really the Iraq war that radicalized me, um, about Jesus and, uh, about the, about, I started sort of opening up some questions for me about, um, places I could see I needed to start to begin to pull apart my identity as a Christian from this identity as an American, uh, which for me had always been sort of one and two go together. Uh, so I, I knew that something was amiss during the Iraq war as Abu Ghraib, as the, these, um, uh, scandals around, um, the abuse of detainees was, was happening. Um, and so just around that time, I found my way into the Mennonite church, uh, which became a place of just a very different sort of understanding of what it means to be a Christian um, and also of what it means to be uh, an American. Um, and so that really began some sh shifts for me over time. Um, and the place that sort of became my church home. Um, and so this book is sort of a emanation of a, maybe a culmination of many years uh, in the Anabaptist tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, now what, what was the kind of your like inciting incident? Like what, what led you to say, I need to write this book now? Like, was there something that just kicked it off that you needed to hop in and do this now? Cause it is very applicable to now. Yeah. You know, I, I think that I'm not alone in, in the, group of people who are writing in the post-Trump administration in in a ways that, that I think for a lot of us are actually trying to unwind the trauma of these past five years um, from the campaign all the way to the, just this past January. And a lot of a lot of people in in my world and my circle and activism and organizing, I think this is sort of the you know where this postmortem is happening. Um, it, I don't think there's any sort of you know um, misunderstanding about how we got to this place, but the question is like, what did this re really reveal about about us, about the church, about whiteness? And so I I wanted to write this book because I think in my circles, um, pacifist circles, people who are very committed to nonviolent peacemaking, you know, one of the phrases from the Bible that gets lifted up all the time is love your enemy. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that. I think that's one of the, at, at the heart of Christian teaching. And it is a phrase that is weaponized um, against people who are the victims of enemies. And so, um, and, and I mean, even to the point where, I don't know if you've heard this before, but oh, that we shouldn't have enemies yep. or, you know, to love your enemies means we don't have them, um, which just is sort of like a, a weird anti-logic in some ways. Like if Jesus says we're to love our enemies, then we have to have enemies and we have to know who they are. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, I sort of sense that this past four years of the Trump administration, instead of seeing the church that the majority white church really step into this place of resistance, what, what actually happened was in a lot of ways, what, what felt like this, this gaslighting, um, you know, the real problem are the divisive people, right? The real problem are the people who who won't make you, who, who refuse to sort of 
take up the gospel of unity, who can't understand their enemy and see that we all really want the same things at the end of the day. And for those of us who were helping to support people who lived in sanctuary, my church, one of our church members was in ICE detention. We bailed people out of ICE detention. I mean, we're hearing this. And at the same time, we're watching the lives of people we love just torn apart that this wound in our community. Um, and so how do we, I needed this sort of project to kind of put together to, for myself, like, what do I do about this, about this message that I'm hearing about unity and togetherness and empathy and compassion with these real experiences of devastation in, in my community and in, in, in our country and our world. Hmm. Now in, in the book, in, in talking about different enemies, uh, you also talk a lot about this whole like, mentality of us and them, um, this kind of tribalized thinking that we get into. So what are some of the costs of, of being stuck in that us and them mentality? Right. I, you know, I think the the danger of a sort of us and them is it is it begins to isolate us from the from the ways that we are that that enmity actually lives within each of within each of us, right? This is that there's always um work for us to be done um in 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 the, the liberation from all of these various oppressions that work together, that reinforce one another. Um, so to carve out the sort of space of a of a clean, pure, um, you know, us that sort of looks out um, on a them, um, I think does, it does, does try to sort of to put position us off. I do, though, feel some caution um, against um, how when I hear people sort of say that they're that that there's a problem in that binary, what it often means is that you just don't want to talk about <laughs> oppression at all, right? You just want to, you're just like, oh, it, it, I think the other option can be that everything gets reduced to the personal. Well, you're such a good guy. Like, and like my 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 neighbor cop is like such a like such a great guy. He would never want to hurt anybody. Like he got into policing because he like loves our community and loves our neighbors. And it's like, well, I guess we're all just these personal stories and you know that's what we're stuck with. And and I think what helps us move beyond that is is attention to the way that to the way that power works um, is always below the surface of those stories. Whose story gets normalized in our communities? Um, who gets to be heard? Who who are policies made around? Which of those stories of empathy and compassion rise to the surface, and which are pushed down, rejected, um, are rationalized away some other in in some other way all of that is a result of power at work in our communities and so that's really what i think offers us a way out of the sort of us them without um the sort of neoliberal turn to just reducing everything to the personal mm. now now I, I want you to unpack this a little bit too because this this is one of your quotes from the book and i and i i really appreciate this and i feel like it fits into what you're what you're starting to talk about here but you say that to have enemies as a source of liberation for ourselves, for those who, who do harm, is to recognize structures of power and their relationship to identity. Now, now I want you to unpack that a little bit. How, how has our identity ended up being connected into systems of power? Um, 
Identities are are constructs, right? I, I think this is you know I, this is something that I think was important to talk about throughout this book. Um, that we we make these assumptions, we build political alliances, we gather ourselves around particular um, uh, ideologies, policies on the basis of our identity. Um, and this and this actually really we do that because our identities are actually very fragile, right? We need like we it doesn't take much. To sort of say like, oh wow, um, something about my like the whatever these expectations about my gender don't actually fit me. Um, but I have to like re I have to recapitulate them. Mm -hmm. I have to reiterate them in order to sort of sustain my place in heteronormative order. Mm -hmm. Or in the same with whiteness, right? I have to sustain this um, this fictive self. Um, and and so all of that, our, our identities are also formed by and formed around within systems of power. Um, and uh, I think once we begin to the sort of willingness to talk about that, um, to open the door to that, there's actually freedom because we because having to um, live under um, the restrictions of a, of a particular form of identity that has been passed down to you to solidify power for, you know, a 2% of our country. Um, that, that is, that is, that is, um, that's, that's bad for all of us, right? That, that, that is how the system, that is how oppressed and oppressor become the system that continues to be interlocked. Uh, and, and, and so really moving away from having enemies is also tied up in that sort of willingness to pay attention to our own identities. Mm. And, and, and in, like in that same vein, because what you, I feel like what you do a lot in the book is trying to reframe certain ideas that we have um, or certain assumptions that we have. So I, I, I want you to talk about a little bit of these. So I'll, I'm going to hit a few of these topics. So the first one being prayer. Um, I know you talk about its ability to change perspective and to reveal things about ourselves. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I wrote a chapter about uh, these psalms that <laughs> I don't actually know if everybody knows about them because they 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 mostly get sort of pushed to the side of um, Christian prayer life um, because they are psalms about people longing for justice and and being really honest with God about what they uh, what these people want God to do on their behalf and it can be pretty intense because these enmities are real <laughs> they are very real um, and so I what I but what I appreciate about those is. That those those psalms actually remind us that it's there, there's not really fooling God, um, even though even as we attempt to fool ourselves about the things that we actually want. Mm. Um, and so, so what does it mean to actually open yourselves up and to say like, this is actually the thing that I want, um, and 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 that I, I think returns us to something about ourselves, right? That's that reveals something about who we are. Um, and I think sometimes that needs to that reveals something that needs to be changed. But I don't want to get too stuck in that narrative because I also think that we um, might also realize in that that there's something very just and holy about our anger. Mm. Um, and I think that's also been a place that the church has not really made enough space. Mm -hmm. Is how do we be angry in the way that it, about angry about the things that God is angry about? So, so, so speaking on anger, because that was my next question as well, too. So how, how, how can, <laughs> how is, how can anger be, because we're, we're always told it's bad, you know, it's bad, bad. And so how can anger in these contexts be helpful and holy? Um, 
You know, I, th I think that it's there's an interesting sort of subset that anger is um, is irrational, right? It doesn't it doesn't fit into um, uh, to what is what amounts to a white European logical system of um, uh, of of displaying our concerns in a civilized way, um, as if nothing is really on the line, right? Like that's that. There's this. Um, we can step away from our emotions and have this rational dialogue. And really, I think the only way that that is um, actually the case is if you don't really have anything on the line, mm -hmm. right? If you if you're lives, the lives of your children, the lives of your people are invested in this conversation, asking you to put um, your emotional content um, in a space that doesn't actually impact the, the way that we're talking mm -hmm. um, is actually, is, I, I would say, is, is part of this colonial project of, of tribalism, mm -hmm. right? To, to make anything that is outside of enlightenment rationalism, um, uh, dark and African or um, something that needs to be tamed, something that needs to be sub, um, subjected to the will of, of the rational enlightened people. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that we are already trained, as you're saying, to be suspicious of anger. Um, except, of course, um, that even that is racialized, right? Like we're even right now we're watching um, we're watching the downplay of, of sort of white rage identity politics of January sixth. Um, and Black Lives Matter is a is an is an uh, an unacceptable form of public anger. So even here we recognize that um, anger is something that we find publicly acceptable when uh, along racial terms, along gender terms, along class terms. And, and so we're talking about that as anger as how it, it's in us, but also how is anger useful within the confines of a community? Because you also talk about this, this, this idea of communities of shared anger. Mm. Yeah, there's just some incredible uh, historic examples. Um, they talk about several of them in the book of communities that have really formed around the ability to share anger with one another um, and letting that anger turn into um, uh, be, be fuel for them, fuel for justice, fuel for solidarity, um, refusing, I think, to, and this wonderful quote from Willie Jennings, um, which I don't have in front of me, so I'll just um, give you the general gist of it, but the refusal to stand off from someone's anger and say, like, I could never understand what it's like to be you, right? Like, I could never understand. Um, and for for Jennings, that sort of, that, that's a cop-out for him. Um, he wants to invite white people to share in black anger, to not have to bear that burden alone. Um, and um, Dr. Jennings, my former professor, um, someone who's been deeply influential for me. And so I've taken, I've taken that seriously. Um, I want to participate um, in sharing the, the burden of black anger in a way that propels us into a community of shared concern. Mm -hmm. And and along those same lines too. What about what is what is the the value of truth telling in community? Because I feel like that's also connected to anger. Because anger is part of it is being able to share it as being honest about where we're at. And then there's also a secondary power to truth telling. What is that power? Yeah, that 
to be angry at another person um, actually takes some intimacy, right? I don't know that, um, I don't know that there are, to, I should say, to be able to be angry at another person and for that anger to be a catalyst for something, I think people can be angry at people all the time, right? But sure. for it to be a catalyst into something, to a to a deeper relationship, to a, a, a shared understanding of what is at the heart of that anger, that actually takes a community that sustains itself over time, that trusts one another, that um, isn't afraid of anger as... Um, not just as a destructive force, but as a as a force that gives life. Um, and so my hope is that um, churches like mine, majority white churches, can be places that can better cultivate anger about the things that God is angry about. Um, and that and that we can also hold in check when our anger is actually grief over, the loss of something of a history that we never had a right to in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I like that. And another thing that you work on here, and, and I feel like this is, it's, it's connected well into community is trying to reframe this idea of, of family and, and what is kind of our, our Americanized version of the nuclear family um, versus this, this other concept that you speak about called like La, Fe- uh, La Familia de Dios. So I want, can you compare and contrast a little of those for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I one of the myths of family that's handed down to us, and um, Karl Marx was so excellent at naming this. Um, and I think uh, any of us who are who are parents and also work or care for family members, decide, we, we can, we, we know this implicitly that, that family is a, a creation. Um, nuclear family is a creation to help us to be better workers, right? We, so we carved out this space called family that sustains us and cares for us and loves us that we retreat to at the end of this, so that we can do this mindless work day in and day out. At least we have the family there as the, as the sustaining purpose. Um, and so when we um, begin to talk about um, when when feminists start to talk about how there's there the personal is always political, right? That the, that there's actually um, we've been we've been taught that you can sort of pull these things apart, but you can actually. It's it's very easy to see the fissure start to develop between this bifurcation, um, and instead. Um, what the, what we often see this doing um, is this sort of family first um, uh, political ideology, right? Like um, it doesn't matter if my uncle is racist at the end of the day, he's still family, right? There's this, my, my kinship ties, which are also racial ties are actually more significant than any of these other relationships. The family is up here, you know, like family, God, country, that this sort of dynamic, um, I actually don't know if that's right. I don't, would, I don't, I don't know what people say. God, family, country, something like that. Gu- guns, are, um, guns are in there too somehow. If it's America, guns are in there too. I don't know. If it's I don't America. know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but within this sort of schema, where where family takes this place, like in the same place as national identity and religious identity, it means that everybody else is is secondary to that. Um, and so when we read um, someone like. 
Maria Estase Diaz talk about um, the expansion of family, how um, la familia becomes, means that you, we have a kinship to people in ICE detention that, that is at the same level of commitment as to our racist uncle, right? Like that, that changes the perspective of who you are bound to, who, who are you bonded to? And when you are bonded, what is your responsibility? What does it mean for you in relation both, um, not, not, not even in the sense of like, you have to do these things, but that this person's identity also speaks back into who you are, right? You are connected to them in some way. Um, and that shift, I think, is um, uh, is profoundly destabilizing of of the economic systems that we have been normalized and have been and and that require the nuclear family in order to be sustained. Mm-hmm. Which is why, again, I think that the why the conservative church, the religious right, can, this is why we get this um, uh, family first um, focus on the family, right? It's this is about actually about economic and political power. It isn't just about um, about moms and dads and and two point five children or whatever it is now, right? Like we're actually talking about economics, and it's it's very important that we recognize um, the way that power works in that structure. Now, this is slightly off the topic of the book, but still very connected into this idea of of community. You, 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 and I were talking before the interview started about uh, you being a pastor during the pandemic. Um, so, I'm just curious too. What what did your community? Uh, how did they teach you during this unique time <laughs> in human history? So, how did they? Yeah, what did they teach you? Um, you know, I um. I was uh, just amazed, um, which shouldn't be this way because uh, Anabaptists have a strong priesthood of all believers. And um, so I shouldn't be as surprised about the unnecessity of myself within within my church. Um, But I just was reminded of that a little bit more. Um, So I was at and uh, doing a front porch visit with an, one of the oldest members of our community um, in her 80s. And she was telling me just sort of casually about how three different people from the church had had come to, to either visit or like raise up her table a few inches or put in some, or had noticed that these um, drawers were at the store. And so they just decided to drop in because they knew it would make things easier for her or had this art book they thought she would enjoy. This, this wasn't a program. It wasn't like, let's all sign up to help Judy out. Like, this is just what the nature of, of people who care for one another do. This is what it means to be invested in one another's lives, um, is you look out for each other. Um, and and you don't need to be reminded of that. And, and, and the fact that members of our church were able to do this um, in, the, in the midst of just this profound suffering and uncertainty of this past year, I think just um, changed changed me and sort of my perception of um, of, of what it means for us to be whole um, together, and um, even under some pretty extreme circumstances. I, I love hearing that because uh, often on the show, I don't shy away from from taking swipes pretty hard at, at American Christian Church. And and during the pandemic, one of the things that I thought, if if the church had generally been doing its job well, this should have just been like, hey, everything we've been talking about, guys, go do it. 
as opposed to everyone like, how do we live stream? How do we get all of the the lighting and the muse? How's all this? And you know, it just but it showed how like how selfish in many arenas the church has just become. It was just about like how me me me. How do we do this? And and the power of the gospel should have just simply been, you guys have heard us preach this. You've read the stories. Go do it now. And and that that would have been my hope so much. But it is it is great hearing that happening on on, on smaller places and smaller levels too, especially within your community as well. That's that's it's really beautiful. Now earlier we we were talking a little bit about power structures because I know the book is a lot about power structures and. And you speak in the book about how Jesus draws a line between himself and the powerful. You know, this idea that Christ is always aligning himself with the marginalized and the vulnerable. Uh, so for folks that are trying to kind of wrap their head around all of this too, because some people may be more dialed in than others, but I want to talk about some macro and micro versions of power structures. So like for like in America overall, like what would you say would be some like some some like macro? So what are some large power structures just for people to begin to understand and wrap their heads around this idea? Um, I mean, the, the foundational fiction upon which our country was created is race. Um, and that is the, the structure of power that propels um, a, most of the economic and political systems that we work in now. Um, but I think, you know, one of the one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was I also wanted to make sure that we talked about the way that 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 racial power is not separate from or distinct from these other large sort of macro systems of power that you're talking about, which I, I think are gender, sexuality, and class. Mm. Um, if you start to pull on any one of those strings, um, eventually you're going to find that you've gotten to one of the other ones. Mm -hmm. They're interconnected, they work together, they facilitate one another's um, a scaffolding as the structure of the United States. <laughs> now, what about like, what, what are some what are some power structures that we may see on more of a local level, on a communal, uh, on a smaller level that that like the I don't know that we don't always pay as much attention to because it's easy to talk about the big ones. But there's lots of small ones too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I, we witness that. Um, we witness this this sort of scaffolded um, structure, you know, it, happening in in our local communities all the time, um, in ways that I think um, that in ways that certainly. Uh, Black queer women, Black queer communities have been gesturing us towards for, mm -hmm. for decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, and maybe just now, those of us in majority white communities are, are ready to hear, ready to listen and act. Um, but, I, you know, policing would be one of those, one of the places where we see uh, this sort of interwoven connection between protecting white property um, from things like vagrancy laws. Like, I don't know that you think like, oh, wow, have I really thought about what vagrancy laws are? It's criminalizing people who do not have a place to live yeah. and we don't have places to put them. We don't have um, mental health care for people who, um, it's, it's not like there's another choice out there of where you can go. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when we, there are all of these uh, things that we take for granted. Um, who gets onto your city council? What are the um, 
what kind of laws are there around zoning in your community? Um, what's your relationship to developers? Um, who gets the tax increment grant in your community and who doesn't have access to that, right? All of these things are just, ex are just reified forms of that, um, of, of racial capital at work in, in, in our local communities. Now, much of the book, what I, what I love you're doing here is also you're continuing just to turn us back to the gospel in all of these things. Like, we continue to turn back to the gospel in all of this because in so much of, of, of American Christianity, we've, 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 or at least in, like, conservative and evangelical circles, we've boiled down the gospel to something like, you pray a prayer, you know where you're going to go when you die, you're good. You know, that, that kind of a very dumb, dumb, idiotic version of the gospel, which is not true. Um, but you talk about this idea of the, the redemption, uh, that the gospel is like redemption from cycles of violence is the heart of the gospel. Um, speak more to that. Speak more to that. I love that line. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of had this, you know, wanted to offer in the um, preface of this book um, something that, that I, I hoped would set the stage for our understanding of, kind of how I think about the relationship of, of the church in the world that I think speaks to this question. Um, and whereas I think the sort of Christianity that, that you're talking about, that I grew up in, that a lot of my church members grew up in and have left, and um, comes from this, uh, this sort of philosophical way of breaking up the world into things that are um, church things, like church worldview things, and then secular worldview things, right? And so, um, so really the, 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 the desire is to leave one and move to the other. Um, whereas I, I just was lucky enough to, to read theologians like Catherine Tanner, who, who taught me that there's, we have a non-competitive relationship with um, all of these places where um, we can witness um, the, the gospel um, that we proclaim mm -hmm. um, popping up in the world. Um, it's it's not a contest to see who gets to, to, to lay claims to that. Um, if we really do believe that um, th that the Lamb of God was crucified at the foundation of the world, there is nothing outside of this redemptive act and work of, of, of God's good news that is um, rising up in the world. Um, and so for me, like abolition work has been um, such a profound example of um, the where the gospel that refuses retribution that is looking for people, looking for opportunities for second chances and third chances for people that takes seriously the need for repair and transformation as part of justice, um, that all of that has come together. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think that I, I can understand my faith apart from the abolition communities that I'm a part of, mm -hmm. because that's been realized. The gospel has been realized for me in those communities who make no claims um, to the church for the most part. Um, and so I, I think that it's important to, um, for us to, to move into this place of non-competition, um, that, that this is, um, that the sense of that, of the conservative church truly conserving, right? Like saying we have to sort of defend this piece, which is of course is its own fiction, right? All of this comes from somewhere. Um, there's just more enlightenment, like whatever. Um, yeah, that, that, that 
we have to just recognize that that itself is is something that was constructed. We are not. Um, we we have a decision to make for ourselves about whether we want to embrace that or not. Well, well, one of my last questions here I have for you. I, I want like what for you? How how is Christ giving you hope in these polarizing times we're at right now? What what is what is fueling you and giving you hope? Mm-hmm. I am hopeful because I have learned again a lot from abolition community members that a new world coming into being doesn't take place because the Supreme Court makes a decision about something um, that we get this act passed. I think all of that is incredibly significant. Um, I I don't want to um, delegitimize how significant those things are for us. And we also know that in this white supremacy infested world, that this is going to reiterate itself over and over again. Um, And so what we have instead are picking up these pieces of the kind of world that we want to live in um, and drawing them together with others every single day. Um, That cannot be taken from us. We cannot, no one can take away um, the practices of reconciliation and forgiveness and transformative justice that we are already working out among us. Um, They can do anything they want. Um, And is we are already building the world that we want to see. Um, We're doing it piece by piece, habit by habit, um, learning our history, refusing to be silent, showing up for one another, being in the streets together, um, getting our people out of jail, whatever it takes. Um, those are the pieces that, that's the thing that makes the world new. And that, um, that's ours. No, no one can take it away from us. Uh, that's a lovely answer. Um, thank you so much for this. The book is How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger, and the Work of Peace by Melissa Floor Bixler. It is out on July 20th. As I said before, it is a great read, and I challenge all of you guys out there to be able to read this. I think it's something that is necessary in this time. So, Melissa, thank you so much for your time. It was great to be with you, Stuart. Thanks for having me on today. Well, much thanks to Melissa Floor Bixler. The book is fantastic, and what I wanted to do is give you guys just a little taste before I send you off today of the book. But there is another approach to others as enemies. In this way of calculating conflict, people who harm others are either misunderstood or simply acting out of their own self-interest to protect their thriving. The way to overcome our enemy is by creating spaces where the falsehood of being enemies is unmasked. We will discover that we all want the same things. We simply have different ways of reaching those goals. Once we are able to unite around this set of shared expectations, we can put down our more radical ideas and work towards a mutually agreed upon goal. Well, that's all I've got this hour, guys. The book is How to Have an Enemy by Melissa Floor Bixler. The book is out July 20th. You should check it out. Well, as we end this broadcast, just a reminder, you can catch us on podcast, this show, and all past ones at www.snarkyfaith.com and wherever else you listen to podcasts. We're there. We're everywhere. 
So thank you again for being a part of the show week after week. I appreciate you all. And as I release you into the wild, wide world, I send you out with the holiest amount of grace and peace and snark. I'm out of here. Catch you guys next week. Peace. <laughs>